0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new StatsCan report says unemployment is down to 5.3%. Good news, right? Well, we'll speak with Leah Nord, Senior Director of Workforce Strategies for the Canadian Chamber, about that. Appointing a new general, Russia looks like they will continue the conflict for months, if not longer. Felix Light, reporter for CBS's is in Istanbul, he brings us the latest. And we'll also check in with Reggie Giacchini, Global News Washington, about some big events happening in the White House. All coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts... Now, today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now, uh, we want to talk about the impacts of of COVID, certainly, and the uh, impact it's had on the economy. Uh, We're trying to pull ourselves out of this. Uh, We talk about economic recovery, and heaven knows we've had some roadblocks along the way. Inflation, of course, has started to rear its ugly head once again, and there are other factors. But uh, a new report uh, that was released uh, this past weekend from Stats Canada suggests that there's some good news, actually. Uh, Canada's unemployment rate dropped to a low of 5.3 percent in March, as provinces, including Ontario and Quebec, saw record employment gains in a, in a tight job market. That's, that's incredible. Uh, Stats Canada says this is the lowest unemployment rate since the agency actually started tracking this kind of data way back in 1976. It's good news. Uh, well, but is it? Joining us to talk about this is Leah Nord, who is a senior director of workforce strategies and inclusive growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Leah, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi. Good morning. Always a pleasure to be here.
0: Let me ask you about this. These numbers off the they look great. Uh, lowest unemployment since 1976. The country added 73,000 jobs uh, in March. That's a 0.4 percent increase. Uh, this is a good news report. Why aren't we feeling the buzz here, Leah?
1: yeah once again it's good news absolutely but it isn't great news and that the issue is it only tells one side of the story right we've got some yeah. pockets though you know the first thing i do have to point out in these numbers again great news as you say you know economy's rebounding but if you take a look under the hood here a little we've got you know a total of over six hundred thousand uh canadians who are either long-term unemployed that means they've been looking uh for a long time more than 20 27 weeks, Uh, and there's also a category who have uh, indicated that they're, you know, willing to work, but they're actually not looking. So we need them in the workforce because the other side of this picture that we, you know, keep uh, concentrating on is the number of job vacancies in this country. Right? Again, we've got, Mm -hmm. you know, we're we're around 900,000. That's one in every 20 jobs in this country are open. Uh, we need, uh, you know, for small and medium-sized businesses and the big ones too, labor, labor shortages are the number one issue, along with supply chain issues, uh, to economic growth. We, we need people working across this country productively in order, you know, to benefit everyone, the country, individuals, Canadians. Uh, we, we fear stagnation otherwise.
0: Thanks. Why isn't it happening? I mean, you know, it sounds as if, wait, this is this is simple. Come on. There are openings here, people. you want to work? Come on. Here's the job for you.
1: Mm-hmm. It does sound simple, but as I've said before, there isn't any silver bullet answer, right? You know, we, we've got, you know, the, if you take a look at these numbers of those who are willing to work, uh, but not looking, they're willing to work if they're given the right opportunity. Well, what's that? What are we looking for? And, And again there's no silver bullet answer right if we could just get everybody in and everyone working this would be simple and we could hum along um you know the analogy i've started using lately is it's like a recipe right you've got a whole bunch of ingredients but you need them all to make the recipe a success right it's not an either or and these days, it's not even a both and; it's a both and and and, right? We need to look at keeping, you know, more mature, older workers in the workforce longer. We need to look at getting all Canadians into the workforce, uh, meaningfully, you know. And we have to also look at immigration here as well.
0: Yeah, and these are all things I know that they're they're discussing at the political level too, especially at the federal level. Uh, but you, you've, when you talk to the, the well, the employers, of course, the members of the chambers mm-hmm. right across the country. Uh, and, and the, the worker shortage is a critical problem right now. And I, I guess there was an anticipation in some circles that look at when we start pulling ourselves out of this, people are going to want to get back to work, they gravitate back to it, uh, you know, or there's going to have to be some reevaluation. you know, some people are going to work remotely maybe for, for good now and that's fine. It seems as if employers are ready to make accommodations for these sorts of things. Is this, what's missing from that recipe now that's, that's making people hesitate to, to get back into the workforce?
1: Again, I think you'd have to ask them. I don't think there's a single answer, but I think there is, you know, we talked about this is, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic, knock on wood, once and for all, for good. But this is actually not the end of the journey. It's the beginning for many, Mm -hmm. right, And in the labor force and and continued disruption, right? We're looking at, you know, getting back to work, back to the office work uh, for many of us. I mean, a reminder that many of us weren't. Uh, You know, the majority of Canadians weren't working from home through this crisis, but many of them are looking to go back to work. What does that look like, right? I think it's, it's all about expectations as well, right? Expectations of an employer, expectations of individuals, which are multifaceted as well, right? And trying to make that connection you know the the whole issue of, of remote work it's it, it isn't so black and white it's not you know being able to to work where you are live where you are and work anywhere in the world or you know have a, a you know go you know out to the suburbs out to the cottages out to more rural areas and 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 you know that might work with your current employer but will it work with your future one as well right it's it it's trying to you know what's the issue is i think differing expectations and, and trying to have that all level out and meet it out is is a, a huge element of this to be sure
0: you can you've done guys have done some pretty in-depth surveys about this too and talking to members about some of the concerns and some of the challenges now too and and when you get a stats canada report i mean you've been following these things for years as i have and and it's it's really just numbers and and you know as you mentioned you need to get the story behind some of these mm-hmm. numbers uh, and when you have vacancies in some of these places, as you've found from some of your uh, research, some of those people are moving on to other jobs. They're not going back. So you've got to find somebody to fill those jobs. And that's, that's a much more difficult task, isn't it?
1: Right. And that's that, you know, the numbers are important. Please don't get us wrong, right? And we're appreciative of stats cat and all this this data because it starts sending us in the right direction and trends, right? But this, you know, when you take a look at those numbers, right, it doesn't tell you about the individuals. Have they moved jobs, right? Have they, you know, we talk about in the US for a long time it was the great resignation that was happening and it wasn't happening here. Why? Is it delayed? Are they holding off? You know, as you know, we talk about, you know, for example, the older population, right? Uh, who was holding off for a long time we thought because you know it was COVID they didn't want to retire and now some say they can't right so so let's take a look below those numbers uh, see what we're talking about see what we're meaning right are they are people really changing sectors if so where and how And, and and you know where do they need to be as well for you know Again, we talk about, you know, for example, the one that comes to mind is we talk a lot about, you know, the greening of this economy, right? Lots and lots of money in last week's federal budget, importantly, right? What are these jobs? What are they? Where are they? Where are the skills and competencies, right? We really have to start planning and looking this out in order to support the economy to be actually able to move that way. Thanks.
0: Well, and you've talked in in the past and and justifiably so, of course, about uh, gender uh, issues with this as well. And, you know, they called this the she session because of the uh, dramatic impact that this had on women in the workforce. Uh, Is there any indication at all that that, that those numbers are starting to look better?
1: Uh, Absolutely. So here you go, right? If you look at those numbers, they do look better. It looks like women have recovered fully and, and we can move on. But I think I think there's a number of issues there. And again, it, it, it talks about, you know, the need to peek under, right? We talked about, you know, even if you look at productivity levels, you know, it looks to be, you know, women are back, especially our core age women, which we were particularly concerned about. But who's kidding who through this crisis? And not only women, let's give credit where credit is due, right? We at the Canadian Chamber haven't used the term she session, I can't even say it very well, because everyone's <laughs> been affected by this crisis. But there is an element of where women have been disproportionately affected in a whole number of ways. And uh, in, in, in even, you know, those who are lower wages and lower earnings and, and racialized women as well. But what you need to look at is, you know, what's that mental health toll of two years of having kids home and they're still going home now, you know, during yeah. this time that that productivity level? Let's talk about paid transparency. Let's talk about, what, you know, they're back in the workforce. Where have they gone? Have they gone back to the same jobs, better jobs, worse jobs? You know, this might be a good news story and we don't even know it yet. We've got to, you know, again, these numbers are great, but we got to look behind the layers a little bit more to get the, the real and true story.
0: And and again, this is, as you say, you've got to put a little meat on the bones here to find out what's happening. Uh, one of the stats here I saw in this report, uh, uh, men between 25 and 54, uh, the numbers are increasing. But those are primarily part-time jobs. Uh, and if that's all that's being offered in certain areas, I mean, I can understand some some reticence to say, well, is that really what I want to commit to right now? The, the, is, is there a better situation for me out there? It, it, it's it's going to take a while for, I guess, people to find their, their footing in this.
1: Yeah, and it all has to even out because I think what you said, part of the story, what if I want to work full-time but can only find part-time? But actually, yeah. what if I want to work part-time, right? We talk about this gig economy uh, and their you know, precarious work, and it's not mutually exclusive. The gig economy has been actually helpful to a lot of people during this crisis who have lost their job and, and found new, new you know, a uh, raison d'etre. You know, that have flexibility are able to do a bit of this and do a bit of that. I've heard lots of stories that way. So it's not a black and white story, right? Again, not to say that there isn't issues, but we really have to understand the numbers in order to um, be able to have those, those policy tools and, and decisions going forward. And goodness knows we need it because we need, we need this. This is, this is not a labor shortage. This is a labor crisis. When we talk about those employment numbers being lower than they've ever been. The job vacancy numbers are higher than they've ever been, right? There's this big dichotomy there. And in order for this country to fully recover, for Canadians to benefit, for businesses to benefit, for this country to grow, we're really going to have to sort this out.
0: I, Governments have to play a role in this. And, and as you and I have talked about in the past, governments don't create jobs, unless we all want to work mm-hmm. for the civil service, and we don't. Uh, but they can create the atmosphere and the climate for jobs to be created. Uh, Are they pushing the right buttons, Leah? I mean, we've heard from a federal budget, uh, Ontario policies and other provincial policies right now uh, of talking about trying to do things about, for instance, you mentioned immigration, to Mm -hmm. try to fast track that. There are skilled people that want to come to this country uh, and it's taken them a year and a half. It's it's way too long for them to just get over here and get into a situation like that. I I know you're in constant contact with, uh, especially the federal government in situations like this. Are they listening and uh, are they crafting policies that are going to try to expedite this?
1: Uh, Yes, I would say. And I would say the issue, though, is there's pockets of good work, right? We need a big, concerted national leadership at the federal level with all the players there as well um, in order to move this forward. One thing that the Canadian Chamber had noted last week in response to these numbers is, you know, one of the pieces we can be looking at is EI reform, reform of the employment insurance program that's, you know, not been touched for 70 years. Last year's budget, uh, you know, provided five million for a comprehensive review. And this is our, you know, it's all about opportunity right now, right? Let's open that up. Let's crack that nut open. And let's look at EI reform. There's so much money in there that most Canadians, I didn't even know for a while go you know, to transfer to provinces and territories for training. And, and and upskilling and reskilling. Let, let let's look at what we need for the future of work and how the EI system can lean into that, right? How it can better support women on maternity leave, you know, how we can bring more into the system um, that need to be brought into the system, but but in a fair way, reminding ourselves that insurance program is an insurance program at the end of the day. You know, that 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 is one thing that would, would take us a very long way. You know, consultations have started. Uh, but going forward, this is this is the opportunity to really look at it rather than nibble at the edges.
0: Are you allowed at the table? I mean, I know you, you're constantly giving advice and input uh, with governments, uh, but I mean, I, I envision—I mean, in my mind anyway—that this is something where, okay, I, I hate to use things like task force and everything, because that kind of usually mm-hmm. just means governments doing stuff for show. But I mean, having, as you say, the the stakeholders, and that includes the chamber. Uh, at the table to say okay we need to have a policy going forward and a strategy going forward. Uh, There's going to be a political end of it but at the same time they shouldn't be able to craft that without input from people like you.
1: Yeah and that's exactly what we've argued as well, right? We need a a mechanism, we need a process that's truly consultative. In our world we call it tripartite, right? You've got business, labor and government at the table and it's not us only being consulted you know, it's us, the three of us together, actually having these these conversations, getting the information and building solutions together. On one level, it's definitely easier said than done. But if we drive to principles, I, I've seen it work. I've seen us have, you know, you'd be surprised. There's more areas of agreement than not. And if you take a look at, you know, that... That overarching vision, if we can all agree, it's good for the economy, it's good for individuals, it's good for business, and it's good for government, it really takes us a long way. It just has to be, you know, not one-offs. It has to be meaningful, it has to be sustained, and it has to be, again, with all parties at the table.
0: As you said at the beginning of the conversation, I mean, these are encouraging numbers. and It it is a good Mm -hmm. news story. Uh, But until we start feeling at a ground level, uh, we're we're not where we need to be right now. And I'm hoping that that the governments understand that. Uh, Great to have you back on the show. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this, Leah.
1: Wonderful. Thank you and have a great day.
0: You take Leonard of course, is senior director of workplace strategies and inclusive growth with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Of course, we had uh, Perrin Beattie from the chamber on last week talking about some of those uh, budget initiatives too. And uh, we're moving forward, but just you know, make sure that we're not—they uh, understand that we're not there yet, and there's a lot of work yet to be done. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Concerning Ukraine over the weekend, uh, President Zelensky talking about a uh, potential massive uh, Russian. Uh, initiative that's going to be coming up in the not-too-distant future. We've seen satellite photos of long, uh, long, long lines of uh, Russian troop movements that are going on. So what is happening and how are they dealing with it? Uh, Pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Felix Light, reporter with CBS News Radio in Istanbul. Uh, Felix, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, Great to be here. What are the concerns about uh, what Russia is doing? Can they, given some of the losses they've suffered over the last few weeks, uh, mount a terrifying attack that some people are predicting?
2: You know what? It's a good question. Uh, you know, the when the Russians sort of pulled away their troops from that failed attack on Kiev, which, of course, lasted over a month and really incurred some really quite substantial losses for them. You know, they said they're going to refocus on the Donbass, this eastern Ukrainian region, kind of Russian speaking, a, a place they kind of imagine that's a bit more supportive to them, perhaps, uh, you know. But I, I think it's a really open question as to whether they can be successful. You know, certain sort of observers on the Russian side have said it'll be very difficult. You know, the sheer amount of sort of losses that Russia suffered north of Kiev and sort of the idea that in, in, in sort of this kind of fighting, you really need a, a three to one numerical advantage over the defender to be assured of victory uh, means that this is going to be tough. You know, there are about as many Ukrainian soldiers as there are Russians in the Donbass right now. So I think there's no assurances that Russia is going to sort of mount some Kind of irresistible offensive in in uh, eastern ukraine
0: but because of those losses that have been reported uh, especially on the russian side uh, there are some that seem to think that look at this is uh, this is a matter of time uh, you know and, and downplaying the, the efficacy of the of the russian troops but uh, as you mentioned they can just bring more and more people into this battle can't they
2: well, you know, they can, of course, but there becomes sort of more problems the more they do that. You know, the, the troops that, they, that have fought so far, the troops that are fighting, and of course the troops that have died, are disproportionately basically the best troops in the Russian army. You know, the paratroopers are the sort of the elite special forces troops. If you keep drawing on new sort of reserves, then that's going to be people like conscripts, you know, 18, 19-year-old boys who are not well-trained, who are not experienced. And crucially, whose sort of, you know, conscription, whose role in the war would be very, very, very unpopular in Russia. You know, there are a lot of memories about sort of the First World War, about wars in Chechnya, in Afghanistan, where these kind of young guys, you know, guys who are not trained for this kind of intense combat, were sort of thrown into meat grinders. And Putin will be very aware that it is a very unpopular thing among sort of mothers and the sort of, you know, older people to use young boys for these kind of purposes. So, you know, it's not a case Russia has limitless resources in terms of manpower, not at all.
0: Putin has been known to, to lean on symbolism, I mean, he, victories and symbolism, things of this nature, putting on a show for the people. Uh, there's an important day coming up, May 9th, uh, when Russia marks Victory Day. That was the day that, that uh, they defeated Nazi Germany in 1945. Uh, some are suggesting that Putin has that goal in mind, to try to have some kind of a victory in Ukraine. That's putting an awful lot of pressure on Russian troops, is it not, to, to be actually to do that sort of thing within the next couple of weeks?
2: Indeed it is, you know, and, and you know, there's less than a month, well, well under a month left until Victory Day. But, you know, I think it it is sort of sensible to focus on this date. You know, it's a huge date in the sort of Russian national calendar. I think certainly, as you say, it's very important, likely, for Putin personally, you know, who sees himself sort of in this sort of, you know, succession of sort of great Russian historical leaders and will want something to bring home on Victory Day. You know, I think... Everything we know about how this military operation was initially planned was that the Russians did not think they would still be fighting it now, and they certainly did not think they'd still be fighting it on victory day. So I think there'll be a strong sort of political imperative to at least achieve something by May the 9th.
0: Is is taking Kiev or trying to take Kiev once again a a symbolic victory for them at least? Do you think that's going to be at least part of the focus?
2: I think Kiev is sort of out of Russia's reach for the foreseeable future. They might sort of focus more on something like, you know, Mariupol, that southeastern port city, which has been besieged for about a month and a half now, but still has not fallen, you know. But even that, that would be a sort of a a big climb down for the Russians, you know, a side that was really expecting to be taking somewhere like Mariupol, I think, within the first week. You know, a month and a half victory day to really take the first city on the border. You know, that's a really poor performance. And I think they'd struggle to sell that as the great victory for May the 9th.
0: Felix, they seem to have centralized the leadership in, in this whole thing. Uh, one Russian general who apparently has a very cruel history of treating uh, people uh, during wartime, uh, especially civilians, uh, seems to be in charge of the operation right now. Is, is this a, a retooling of the mindset here? Is uh, what the strategy that's going to be employed?
1: Yeah,
2: you know, possibly. I think certainly they can't be very pleased with what's gone on. And certainly sort of there was a lot of confusion at, at first, sort of many different army groups being employed with sort of each with their own sort of commander. Groups like the National, Russian National Guard as well being used, you know, which is sort of a, a separate organization to the military. And I think generally, you know, a lot of analysts sort of said that early in the war, you know that russia's failures were down to this failure to coordinate there was sort of a lot of uh you know crossed wires between sort of uh, organizations between institutions and sort of troops weren't working together in the way they need to be so you know you could interpret this new commander as sort of someone who's been tasked by putin to sort of bring order you know where there's a bit of chaos uh you know tactically i don't know how much of a change we'll see you know we've already seen russia basically employing those those same sort of syrian tactics you know smash up cities kill civilians terrorize the population and so but I, you know, I do. I certainly think it's a, it's a good bet that that sort of grim tactics, that grim strategy, will continue for the foreseeable future in Ukraine.
0: One of your colleagues characterized it a couple of days ago in this way: that uh, the Russians may actually uh, end up occupying Ukraine, but they will never conquer Ukraine. You, you share that assessment?
2: Well, to be honest, I, I'd be pretty skeptical if they will manage to occupy uh, Ukraine. You know, I think that uh, at this point. For Russia, there doesn't seem to be sort of much of a a sort of a, a ceiling for sort of results above maybe occupying, you know, the Donbass, that eastern part of Ukraine. You know, I think that, you know, they, they'll, they'll struggle to sort of make meaningful inroads sort of northwards towards Kiev or in the south with that port city Odessa. You know, I think this is now a war that sort of, uh, you know, it, the initial goal of Russia to really subdue, to conquer, to occupy Ukraine just seems completely out of reach to me, I think.
0: Felix Light, uh, CBS News Radio reporting uh, with what's going on in Ukraine. Always great to get the word on what's happening on the ground. Felix, thank you so much for this. Uh, Stay well, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Focus on Washington, D.C. There's a lot going on. We know the midterm elections, of course, are coming up in in, uh, November. Uh, Some uh, security uh, uh, intelligence sources down in the States are saying that Vladimir Putin may think this is an ideal opportunity uh, to once again uh, interfere in U.S. politics. Uh, To talk about that and lots more, I want to bring our uh, friend Reggie Cicchini back in. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, And, uh, Reggie, first of all, it's a busy day today. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Good morning. Before we hop into the to the Ukraine situation and the possible link with Putin in the election, uh, I, I want to jump into something else that's uh, happening right now, from what I understand, though, later on today anyway. Uh, President Biden expected to release rules about what he calls ghost guns. Uh, given the fact that he's not doing well in the polls, uh, any mention at all about anything to do with guns and gun control is usually not a good idea. Why is he moving forward on something as controversial as this right now, Reggie?
3: Well I mean it's a part and parcel with uh with two things number one it's an attempt to try and move forward on gun control uh, in the United States this is obviously something that has kind of flown under the radar for the last couple of years during COVID uh but is uh usually top of mind for a democratic white house uh whenever it's in power uh but number 2 this is an opportunity as well for the president to uh put forward a name to lead the alcohol tobacco and firearms uh agency within the US which hasn't had uh a leader or a director for quite some time the the former biden nominee withdrew uh because there simply wasn't enough support uh from both sides uh of the aisle so this is an opportunity for the president to come through uh and it does assist at least with the progressive side of the democratic party uh, and could potentially boost some of Joe Biden's numbers, uh, because obviously this is, a, this is a big deal for Democrats, but it also comes at a time where we're seeing gun crimes across the United States really start to tick up at an increasing rate.
0: Uh, maybe you could explain to our listeners why, what we mean by uh, ghost guns. This is not necessarily gun control, it's more or less, well maybe I'll let you explain it.
3: Yeah, look, ghost guns are are guns that you can essentially uh, put together. They are guns that don't have serial numbers on them. It makes it much more difficult for these weapons uh, to be tracked uh, and to locate where they may have come from. You can go online. You can start uh, looking for information that would allow you to put a gun together. And this really has become kind of a gray area across the United States because uh, it allows for more guns to be in the hands of the wrong people. Democrats really have been uh, trying to get this taken care of for the last several years COVID got in the way uh, of gun control, uh, despite the fact that we were seeing, um, you know, the numbers of gun crimes really start to go up. That started to increase towards the end of the pandemic. So if the president, uh, whatever he announces today uh, at this event uh, later on this afternoon, uh, this is going to go another step further in the U.S. trying to crack down uh, on its gun crisis. And it is worth pointing out that the United States has some of, if not still, the most gun-related deaths of any country in the world.
0: The NRA has always been a strong opponent to anything to do with guns. Are they being loud and and vocal about what their opposition is to this? I mean, look, the
3: NRA is always going to stand up for uh, what it believes to be, uh, you know, the the average American's constitutional right to be able to bear a firearm, as it says in the Second Amendment. But the NRA has its own uh, crises to deal with. It has a financial collapse that, uh, you know, is constantly lingering on its shoulder. It doesn't really produce uh, on a public basis the number of people who are actually paying in to be members of the NRA. So they have been under uh, increasing pressure for the last several years, including a number of lawsuits that are going cross uh, through a number of states. Still, the NRA is going to come back uh, against this. You know, the NRA is, is, this, is the organization who ultimately gives a number of Democrats, uh, you know, in the United States, a low number or a low rating when it comes to, uh, you know, how they treat the Second Amendment. At the end of the day, the NRA often goes up heavily against a Democratic White House. This time around, though, the White House may get the upper hand.
0: Uh, you mentioned in your reporting last week, of course, that uh, the, the Supreme Court nominee for the Biden administration actually was finally confirmed. Katanja Brown-Jackson uh, won, uh, but got dissed, I guess, by a couple of senators, uh, the senators in the final vote. Uh, the way the vote actually took place was rather odd, and, and and their reaction to this is getting a lot of negative press, isn't it? It
3: is. Uh, and look, for for a number of reasons here, uh, you know, the story is kind of circular. Are there always going to be Republicans who stand up to try to push back on uh, a Democratic Supreme Court nominee? Absolutely. They, uh, that's always going to happen because these are lifetime appointments that are going to have potential alterings of how you know the U.S. operates on a generational basis. So to see Republicans stand up and push back, that is not out of the ordinary. What was out of the ordinary is how this vote took place. Oftentimes, you can do a voice vote, you can do uh, a vote from somewhere else, but the the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, called for a vote to take place at desks inside the Senate chamber. This is something that happens during uh, kind of big-time votes, like a Supreme Court nominee, in order to vote on the Senate floor you need to be wearing a tie. Lindsey Graham was not wearing a tie when he was on the floor. He wasn't able to vote from the floor. He had to vote from a back, uh, kind of a Senate lobby, the cloakroom. Uh, Senator Rand Paul didn't even show up to vote and delayed that vote by 30 minutes. So this was all you know, just a, a delay tactic by Republicans to show their disapproval uh, of this nominee put forward by uh, by Joe Biden, ultimately – the nomination went forward, but it goes to show that bipartisanship oftentimes is a very difficult thing to come by.
0: Well, and one of the other sidebar stories, I guess, to this very thing is, is some of the comments from Mitch McConnell. Uh, I guess McConnell is anticipating that maybe the Republicans are going to retake uh, the House and maybe even the Senate during the midterms later this year. But he suggested uh, over the weekend, Reggie, as you guys were reporting, uh, that this is probably the last uh, if a Biden admit, uh, tries to put up anybody else for the Supreme Court, he's not even going to have a hearing on it. Uh, basically shutting the door not like what they did with the Obama administration. That's a rather ominous warning for the Biden administration.
3: And this is the Republican and notably Minority Leader McConnell's way of pushing back on what he sees as an you know ever growing um, kind of far left position that he sees the president uh, in taking. Uh, And and if uh, a a seat happened to open up, if there was going to be a vacancy, obviously you're going to see President Biden try to push something through. And if Republicans are in control in the Senate, it is going to be difficult. This could put the president in a position of potentially not taking somebody who is too far left to be sitting on the bench, take somebody who is more uh, of a moderate that could draw some support from Republicans. There's always going to be a potential way around this if he can win some kind of Republican support, especially If Republicans win later this year with not as wide a margin, that's something that obviously is still to be seen. Uh, But to see Republicans stand up and say, look, we will treat you the same way we treated President uh, Obama and not push through a Supreme Court nominee. uh, Again, it, it goes to show that politics is difficult in this country, even when you're talking about the judiciary, where politics are supposed to stay away from.
0: We mentioned November, of course, the midterms. Uh, I, I've seen a number of pieces uh, out of various Washington publications right now. Uh, well, the one headline jumped out at me, a sour and angry America is poised to punish the Democrats this fall. Uh, what's what's the mood in the beltway right now? Are the Democrats just almost accepting the fact that they're in big, big trouble here? or Do they still feel optimistic?
3: Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of things that Democrats are concerned about right now. Number one, just being, uh, you know, a growing Republican movement, a growing Republican voice uh, that could potentially steal away some of the victories that were uh, gained a couple of years ago. But number two, history is just not on the Democrat side. Typically, when you see somebody win the White House, the opposing party oftentimes wins uh, in the midterms. And that is something that Democrats have you know, been fearful of since the day Joe Biden won the election. In 2020, but there are, uh, you know, mounting issues underneath Joe Biden's presidency, number one being the war in Ukraine, number two being inflation across the country, number three being an ongoing uptick uh, in COVID-19 cases and seeing some cities across the U.S. like Philadelphia potentially going back into COVID preventive mandates like putting masks on. This is problematic for an administration uh, where the president is hovering in an approval rating in and around the low 40s. And while they could see gains over the next couple of months, those gains are going to need to be significant because Democrats are trying to keep control uh, in a couple of key states that will likely be make or break for the Senate uh, and, and really spell a potential end for the Biden
0: agenda. Uh, yeah, you mentioned about the uh, the COVID situation still relatively uh, under the radar, I guess, for some people, but the numbers are there. I mean, what was the story of the weekend about 53 people testing positive from an A-list dinner in Washington? Uh, it's It's still there, even though they may not want to talk about it. Absolutely. And I mean, to
3: the point of where the White House press staff last week was out there saying that, look, President Biden is, is very likely potentially going to wind up getting sick, despite the fact that he is fully vaccinated and has uh, a third and a fourth dose. This is something that is now spreading through Washington, like we saw take place during the Trump administration, just on a far smaller scale. It's hitting the East Wing uh, with uh, with members of the First Lady's team infected. It's hitting the West Wing. It is hitting the president's executive cabinet, the mayor of D.C. is out uh, with COVID right now. The mayor of New York City is out with COVID. It is still a real issue here, and there are ongoing concerns that the number of cases in the U.S. Uh, is being drastically undercounted. Number one, testing is available for at-home tests at a much more, uh, you know, regular rate than it was during the pandemic, and these numbers aren't being counted by the CDC, but also, two, funding for uh, COVID in the United States is also running out quickly, and that's making it more difficult uh, to be able to track things. Look, Bill, 30,000 cases every single day in the United States are what's counted. That's 1% of the population of the U.S. coming down with COVID every single day. And with BA2 now the the, the dominant variant uh, in the country, there are legitimate concerns that these numbers are going to continue to go up already on the rise in 25 states.
0: As if that's not enough for the Biden administration to worry about, uh, security reports uh, over the weekend indicate uh, that Vladimir Putin could be using the Ukraine war to interfere in U.S. politics. With the midterms coming up, of course, in November, uh, we already know that uh, that uh, a number of uh, investigations have already shown that the Russians did meddle in the last two uh, federal elections down there. Is uh, How does the Biden administration deal with this and they know this is coming you know that Putin is is looking at this and anything he can do to weaken the Biden administration you got to figure he's going to take a run at it
3: yeah and I mean look the United States uh is actively working to put together um you know uh uh A a comprehensive uh, team and group, uh, you know, within the intelligence agencies to be able to track what's going on when it comes to how uh, not just Russia, but any other foreign adversary tries to get in the way uh, of American elections. You're right. This is something that was, uh, you know, very uh, kind of put under a spotlight during 2016 and with the Mueller investigation and then complaints again and concerns again that Russia was involved uh, with the 2020 election. Uh, The intelligence agencies uh, right now have not been able to kind of pinpoint anything that Russia could potentially be doing or any kind of, uh, you know, potential candidates that the Republicans, uh, that, uh, that Russians could potentially be going after as we head into the midterms uh, this year. But this is obviously of a growing concern. I think that there are two different sides to this story, however, uh, and, and the biggest one being that Russia is involved in an on-the-ground war in Ukraine right now. Does that take away some of their potential capabilities for being able to carry out some form uh, of uh, malicious activity when it comes to the election later this year because most of their energy most of their effort most of the money that they have available to them is tied up in this ground offensive so it's one of those intelligence agencies are watching they're anticipating they're waiting to see if russia
0: gets involved they just don't know what it's going to look like got a minute or so left i want to ask you about something that's going to be going on today uh, reggie uh, of course uh, uh, president biden is going to be meeting with indian president modi virtually of course Uh, There's been some concern expressed by the Biden administration over the last couple of months about India's position vis-a-vis Russia uh, and, of course, the invasion in Ukraine. Uh, We know that uh, the Indians are still carrying on uh, trade with Russia. They buy an awful lot of arms there uh, and, and of course, uh, natural gas and things of this nature. In other words, they're not playing the embargo rules and the the other sanction rules that other countries are. Is is this going to be a congenial meeting today, or is the president going to express that concern to Modi?
3: I think you're going to see the president uh, express concern especially since last week as well we saw India abstain from a vote uh to see Russia suspended from the UN Human Rights Council uh you know again you're right there are strong economic ties between India and Russia and India is trying to do everything it can to ensure that its economy is not going to get caught up uh in this war between Russia and Ukraine you're going to see uh the president uh, and potentially uh the secretary of state or, or somebody from the uh, from the Pentagon uh make comments back to India that They need to be on, you know, quote unquote, the right side of history and ensuring that they're lined up with supporting the people uh, of Ukraine. But again, India is going to do what it sees as best for its own economy. uh, And, you know, far be it for the for the United States to try and tell another country what they should uh, and shouldn't be doing. There will likely be moments of frustration issued by the president uh, to say there are things that can be done uh, and need to be done. We'll have to wait to see what ultimately that's going to look like, but I think you're also going to see that the President and the United States will also try to line up with India to say, look, we will also protect you uh, when it comes to potential aggressions that come out uh, of China as well. So there are geopolitical issues that may push the U.S. further from India, while at the same time draw them closer.
0: It's a pivotal week in Washington. Uh, we look forward to reporting on this, and always, of uh, course, your uh, time with us on Monday. Thank you so much, Reggie. Take care. Thanks, Bill. Okay, care reggie chikini washington correspondent with global news uh in uh, the u.s capitol and like can say with the president's meeting with modi and a number of other things going on plus let's you know connect the dots here there's also the element of uh, what seems to be uh renewed attacks by the russians on the ukraine capital too and how the u.s is going to respond to that so we'll be watching on the Global National Nightly at 6.30 to get all the details on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900
2: CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.